This is the Breakaway Podcast, presented by the National Bird Hunters Association. The NBHA's Breakaway Podcast is brought to you by Purina Pro Plan, fine-tuned nutrition to promote strength and stamina in the canine athlete and longest-standing supporter of sport of field trialing nationwide. You can fuel your champion with Purina Pro Plan using various physical and online retailers nationwide found wherever pet food is sold. Purina Pro Plan, fuel the champion within. Garmin, delivering innovative GPS-enabled technology across diverse markets, including sports and fitness, outdoor recreation, marine, automotive, and aviation. Garmin, engineered on the inside for life on the outside. Gundog Supply the leader in training collars, tracking collars, and so much more. Fast, friendly service, great customer support, and the newest Gundog products on the market. Gundog Supply, we train our dogs with the products we sell. Mule brand clothing and apparel. Outdoor clothing for all sorts of environments and conditions, from hunters and briars and wading creeks to forestry personnel, farmers, motorcycle riders, and utility workers. Mule is clothing for hunters, made by hunters for over 38 years. Find your mule brand gear at www.okeydogsupply.com. Gun Dog Central. Gun Dog Central is a centralized location for finding your next dog, whether it be a pointing dog, retriever, flusher, versatile breed, hound, or even terrier, you name it. Gun Dog Central is the place to find your next canine athlete. To find your next champion, visit them at www.gundogcentral.com. Onyx Hunt, the number one hunting GPS app. Join the millions of hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt, know where you stand. And Park City's Quail Coalition. Park City's Quail Coalition is a nonprofit organization run 100% by volunteers who are passionate about sporting traditions and determined to make it available to future generations by working to sustain and restore huntable wild quail populations to encourage and educate interested youth and to celebrate the quail hunting heritage. Welcome to the Breakaway Podcast presented by the National Bird Hunters Association. I'm your host, Joe Hopkins. So glad that you would join us once again for another episode. Hailing from Gardner, Kansas, our guest this week spent his formative years immersed in quail and pheasant country. It was during the autumn of 1992 that Dr. Stan Wendt made his maiden appearance at a field trial organized by the Midwest Missouri Bird Hunters in Grand River, Iowa, where he won an amateur derby stake with his pointer female, Popsicle. Little did he know this victory would serve as a launch pad for himself as it sparked a flame to one of the most accomplished careers in field trials. Over the next 15 years, Dr. Wentz Kennel would grow and produce an exorbitant amount of winners and champions, along with the assistance of professional trainer Mr. Scott Miller. Household names like Hall of Famer and Breed Shaper Honky Tonk Attitude, along with other Hall of Fame inductees such as Honky Tonk Gigolo and Attitude's High Finance and other notable champions including the likes of Shadow's Attitude, Edition's Big Delivery, Honky Tonk Fantasy, and Honky Tonk High Rise helped Dr. Wendt and his operation become synonymous not only with the NBHA, but a formidable force within the entire field trial world. 
Whether handled by himself or Mr. Miller, Dr. Went amassed more than 340 wins while winning accolades such as National Amateur Handler of the Year for a total of nine times and is, to this day, still the only owner-handler to win the NBHA National Amateur Championship three times with three different dogs with a total of nine wins in that particular championship. Dr. Went frequented Open Company as well, winning the NBHA National Open Championship 10 times, the NBHA Fraturity twice, and racked up 12 NBHA Dog of the Year awards. In addition to his impressive competitive resume, Dr. Went also pioneered the first NBHA sanctioned trial in the state of Kansas and over the course of his career has become chairman of countless trials while holding the office of NBHA president, NBHA secretary, NBHA treasurer, and is noted for negotiating several critical and lucrative sponsorships for the organization while implementing the first digital dog and handler records database the organization still uses today. It is arguable as well that no one has judged more of the country's most prestigious walking and horseback events, both open and amateur, than Dr. Went. Beginning his residency as one of the three judges of the national championship at the hallowed grounds of the Ames Plantation in 2019, Dr. Went has judged the coveted all-age event five times and will sit in the judicial saddle once more this upcoming February. Dr. Went's storybook career has landed him real estate as well within the NBHA Hall of Fame and the Kansas Field Trial Clubs Association Hall of Fame. Aside from his passion of field trials, Dr. Went lives in Gardner, Kansas with his wife of 36 years, Miss Julie, and is a practicing periodontal specialist for over 40 years. But before we get to Dr. Went, I want to make you aware of some upcoming NBHA dates on the calendar so you can go ahead and start making plans while also kind of give you a, a rough overview of the uh, late summer field trial landscape as it tar- starts to take shape. The late summer circuit of grouse trials is starting to come to a close in the Northwoods, which, which means more or less that the Prairie Championships are on the horizon, with the first one being the Southwestern Championship followed by the All-American Open Shooting Dog Championship out in South Dakota. Uh, the Vishla gangs are getting ready to get started up with the Midwest Vishla Shooting Dog Championship in Iowa. And then you start to get into that cover dog season the, or the meat of it starting with the North American Woodcock Championship and the North American Woodcock Futurity both there in New Brunswick followed by the New York State Grouse Championship. But as with regards to MBHA, The Boiling Springs Field Trial Club will have their opening field trial on September 16th at the farm of Tony Bingham in Lawndale, North Carolina. Those entries are going to close on September 10th, followed by the Southwest Missouri Field Trial Club on September 22nd at the Robert E. Talbot Conservation Area in Mount Vernon, Missouri, with those entries closing September 18th. The NBHA Shark Tail Championship, as we discussed in the last episode with Mr. James Cleave of Outcast Kennels, will be held on September 22nd at the name McCoggin Barrens Wildlife Management Area in Dansbury, Wisconsin, with entries closing September 14th. And the North Missouri Field Trial Association will be having their opener on September 30th at the grounds of Kevin and Heather Western in Martinstown, Missouri, with entries closing September 26th. So without further ado, let's welcome in Dr. Stan Wint. What a privilege and treat to be joined by NBHA Hall of Famer, Kansas Field Trial Clubs Association Hall of Famer, and current resident judge of the All-Age National Championship at the Ames Plantation, Dr. Stan Went. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. 
Well, it's it's an honor to be on your podcast, and anything that helps make field trials better, I'm always interested in. So, and and that's mostly that's mostly the uh, the attitude most people have when it comes to doing anything for field trials. And just in the little time that we've known each other and got to talk leading up to this field trial, this podcast, you have clearly echoed that. Uh, anything good for trials, you're in on it, and um, you want to be a part of it. But uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and make something known here. When, when, when the idea of this podcast came up and we started, you know, brainstorming ideas and coming up for subject matter and content, it was overwhelming the number of people that were sending emails and text messages and calling me up saying, you got to get Dr. Went on the phone on there. You got to get Dr. Went on the podcast. He'll be perfect. He'll be perfect. And I got to thinking, yeah, he would be perfect. He he's one of the judges at Ames. Why why not? But then it dawned on me as I started doing my research and getting prepared for everything, you are another Stan Went that I also know from NBHA fame and I had never put it together. So I knew Dr. Stan Went that sat in the judicial saddle, but I also knew Dr. Went that was in the NBA Child Hall of Fame. And I'm I'm happy to know that you are the same guy. Well, it's a, it's been a long road from one place to the other. But it's uh you know, it's it's been very interesting and you know, uh for me it's all about the dogs, you know, picking the best dog, running the best dog, enjoying your dog, and the people that you meet along the way uh are what make it really special. And even though dogs come and go, your friends don't. And you make friends at every field trial, at every time you go someplace. So field trial people are just wonderful. They yeah, really are. Clearly a unique community and, and group of people all together. But before we get started, I, ha- I have to ask you about something. Because when I was going through my research, just trying to get some points, making sure I didn't miss anything and that we covered everything that our listeners would want to hear, I got to looking at um, some of the things in the NBHA archives, and one of the things was a document of your announcement into the NBHA Hall of Fame. And I thought it rather interesting, the picture that they chose to use of you. You're, you're standing there, big smile on your face, beautiful pointer stacked up in a winner's photo, and you've got a Superman shirt on. Now, mm-hmm. clearly, there's a story behind the Superman shirt. you got to tell me and the listeners what the deal is with the Superman shirt. Well, um, the Superman shirts kind of started out with a uh, honky tonk attitude. And that was uh, at that point in time, uh, when you ran for the amateur national championship, it was a two go deal. And that is you, you ran to get qualified and then they pick certain dogs and you went again. And when uh, honky tonk attitude went down in Texas, um, I had uh, four of the six dogs that were qualified. And so he was the last dog that was, that they listed in the thing. And so I would go run a dog, chug a quart of Gatorade, mm-hmm. change my shirt and go run the next dog. And that all happened in, in a one day period. And so, uh, it was kind of funny because uh, the last shirt that I had on was a Superman shirt. And, uh, when we won that, uh, and I say we, because I never won anything, the dog won everything. Uh, I had the Superman logo 
tattooed on my back with oh, his name in the middle of it. No way. Cool. Yeah. And so I still have that tattoo to this day. <laughs> what a story. Well, yeah. I can't say that I knew what I was getting into when I asked you that question, but I got more than I bargained for. Wow. What a story. That's awesome. Those, yep. those memories will stay with you forever, but that tattoo sure will too. That's cool. Um, look, we've got so much to cover, Dr. Went, and, and I want to start off by asking you a question that we're hopefully going to ask a lot of other people that come on this podcast. But one of the things that people desperately want to know about our guests and just people in general in field trials is how did you get started in bird dogs as a whole? Who was your first dog? How did Dr. Sure. Went find himself in the bird dog world? My father was a farmer, never took me hunting in his life. He had a brother who was uh, a very avid hunter, and I would go with him even before I could carry a gun. And so when I was 10 years old, for my birthday, I got a pointer puppy, a little female dog who was out of air pilot and uh, a haberdasher female. And I knew nothing about training a dog, but I lived close to a road and you couldn't just let this dog run loose there. So we kind of kept the dog in a pen or kept her chained up. And so the first day of quail season, I couldn't wait for my uncle to get there to take, take me hunting. And so I grabbed a double barrel shotgun out of the house, turned this dog loose. She went down and pointed the first bird she'd ever seen. I shot it. I killed it. She brought it to me, and I thought, this is the greatest thing in the whole world. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's the tale as old as time, and, and everybody yeah. has those magical moments there. And, and, you know, most of the people in field trials, those memories start with a hunting dog, a shotgun, and a farm somewhere or a piece of ground somewhere where they bird hunted. And that turns into a career of some sort or an avenue into field trials. When and or what was the first trial you attended? Well, fast forward about oh, 25 years, uh, I, was, uh, I went to a fun trial uh, up at Smithville, Missouri, and, and kind of watched. And uh, when I was there, a gentleman by the name of Randy Brink, who uh, had just won the amateur um, national shooting dog championship in the NBHA with Shasta Rail, put on a demonstration. And he showed a dog that was steady to wing shot, kill, force broke to retrieve, and backed on side. Wow. And then I thought, oh, this is cool. You know? <laughs> and um, I had purchased a dog uh, from Gene Casal that was out of the first frozen semen litter out of guardrail. Wow. And to get the dog, uh, Mr. Casal made me promise to take the dog to a field trial. And so, you know, that was my first experience. And so I went home and trained like crazy. And, you know, being an obsessive compulsive control freak, uh, read every book and videotape and all of these things, and trained the dog stayed in wing and shot and took her to her first derby stake and she won. And she won the next six. And at that point in time, I was thinking this was pretty easy. And as I got out of the local trials and got into the state classics and, and things, I noticed that my dog wasn't quite as good as some of the other ones. Mm. And so that's when I started looking for another dog. And uh, she went to the, she went 
I sold her through Tim Epps to a guy in Japan, and I started looking for a serious field trial dog. And I, the next dog that I came up with was a little liver-headed dog uh, out of Phil and Rocky Boy that we named Honky Tonk Attitude. Wow, wow. And, and Honky Tonk Attitude, or Bull as his call name was, sets this just unbelievable trajectory for your career. But one thing that I have noted, Dr. Went, in most people's field trial lives is there's a common thread where there are there's certain people. There's a lot of people involved in field trials and in various aspects, but there's amongst every field trial, there's usually a core group or person that kind of helps mentor or brings them along, becomes mm-hmm. close friends. Did you have any of these earlier on in your oh, career? And if you did, who were they? Yeah. Well, the the first person who started taking me to trials because I didn't have a horse was uh, uh, Charlie Sackett, and uh, uh, he was real active in in the NBHA in Missouri and at the Smithville Club, and so that's kind of where I started. And then, uh, uh, like I said, Randy Randy Brinks from up here in Kansas City also, and so. He was always good to give advice, and then I I, I kind of did something kind of strange, and that is I thought, well, you know, uh, who should I hang out with? Well, I was at a trial up in, in Iowa, and Scott Miller's wife uh, came up to me, and she said, well, you need to put your dog with my husband, and I said, lady i don't want to mess with a dog trainer i said all they do is lie to you and take your money and i watched scott that day and he just kept running these dogs and running these dogs and running these dogs and when he got the this one that really hit and did a good job i went over and congratulated him and uh i won the derby he won the shooting dog and uh we kind of clicked from then on and so, you know, there were a lot of, of dogs that we looked at and stuff. Uh, I had another dog in there called another Nell who we qualified her for the open NBHA open national championship, but then we lost her 26 times in a row, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's why we ended started looking for another dog, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's always kind of interesting how things take place. You you don't read about that in the field. All you see is the good stuff and you just think, wow, this dog is flawless. And then you get a tidbit like that and you feel good that everybody's human and those dogs are just like everybody else's dogs. Oh yeah. You know, and then, you know, um, Terry Smith from uh, down in Oklahoma, Tommy Woods, who's still in the NBHA. Uh, those people were some of my closest friends whenever I was uh, real active. Right, at right. That point in time. And Mr. Woods just recently himself inducted into the NBHA mm-hmm. Hall of Fame and very deservingly so. Now, you and I have talked um, off the recorder about this, and this is the most – interesting point about the MBHA with your perspective and your experience that I think listeners may be aware of, but they're going to really enjoy listening about, or if they don't know this about a little piece of MBHA history that they may or may not know exists, when you were participating, when you were at the top of the MBHA game, the format was drastically different, was it not? Oh, it was significantly different. It it was, uh, you know, and uh, although I may alienate some of my shooting dog and all age friends, but 
at that point in time, the NBHA had the best trained dogs in the world. Those dogs had to be not only steady to wing and shot, but they had to be force broke to retrieve. They had to be steady to kill and they had to back. And you had to do that in every trial, even in a weekend trial. Wow. And, and so, uh, it required a much, much higher level of training uh, and uh, the competitions at that point in time were really pretty brutal because there were a lot of good dogs. I mean, uh, at one point in time, I believe the, the NBHA ran about uh, almost 12,000 dogs a year. Wow. And so, you know, um, things changed quite markedly and uh, it, it, it really forced you to have a very complete dog. And it wasn't a hunt test type situation. I mean, you were still on a course. There was no bird field. I mean, uh, you were on the ground with a dog for an hour. Uh, the open nationals at that point in time was two hours. And, uh, you know, in a two hour, in a two hour final, uh, your dog might have anywhere between seven to 14 contacts with birds. Wow. Uh, and, you know, you really wanted to show your dog off and you're halfway through where you killed your bird on course. And then, uh, the next bird that the dog pointed, you know, if you were real gutsy, you might shoot it and have him retrieve it too. And then have <laughs> five or six fines after that. Oh my you goodness. So, so it's, it was a, it was a completely different format than what we have now. And, um, I was, uh, the president of the NBHA when, uh, I was kind of summoned to Chicago to talk to Bernie Ma Mathis about the future. And, uh, at that point in time, Bernie had, had just, uh, uh, decided that they weren't, he wasn't going to allow shoot to retrieve to continue in, in the American field. And so, uh, I was informed that we were going to have to change our format and come in, uh, in line with what the AFTCA was doing, which was basically stayed wing shot hmm. or we were not going to be recognized and our championships would not be recognized. And so, um, that, that was a rather difficult, uh, sales pitch when you went back to the national meeting. Sure. Yeah. That's a massive, massive pivot from yeah. the format that you had grown accustomed to and that you were familiar with and had so much success in and so many people had come to love to what we know now. And we still love the format here today, but it's amazing how much of that has changed. And when you look back over the course of, of your MBHA career, Dr. Wint, what, what was it about walking trials, the format, whether then or now, and the MBHA that fit good for you and, and the other patrons at that time? What, was, what, what made it work for you? Well, uh, as, I, as I said earlier, I grew up as a quail hunter, okay? I grew up in southeast Kansas. Um, there were a lot of quail at that point in time. I mean, you could, you could, uh, you could get a limit of quail at that point in time in, a, in less than an hour. Mm. I've stood in one spot and, and never moved and killed a limit of quail. Wow. And so, you know, as a hunter, from the time I was young until I was in my mid-40s, I always kept three or four bird dogs. And um, when I saw the NBHA format and I saw what 
what their dogs were capable of doing, uh, it was a logical transition because it was it was more like it was more like the hunting environment that I'd been in, only very refined, as opposed to uh, horseback competition. Right, right, and elementally, it's it involves a lot of the same components and parts of your average upland bird hunt i mean there's there was there was a gun involved there were birds um your dog had to perform and hold those standards but i look back at those trials and try to put myself and my dogs in and i'm sure glad that they've changed because that's that's a lot to ask a dog to do and you've said it twice now in our conversations that um that was a really true test of the acumen and the abilities the trainability, the handler, and, and all the parts and pieces at a trial to, to perform and do all of that. It, it's amazing to think that that's that you had to put all of that together to get a piece of the pie. Well, and 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 there were very few dogs that could withstand that kind of mental pressure. And then, as if you've been around a lot of dogs, you know that there's there's a group of dogs that you can train state wing shot. And then, then you look at that dog, and then there's dogs that can do more than four fines without losing their mind. And then, right. you know, so you've got the dog who can now do multiple fines. And now what you're going to do is you're going to drop one in front of him. You're expecting him to stand there. You're going to tap him on the head and tell him to go retrieve. And then the next bird that you may uh, that that you may point, he may think you're going to do the whole thing, and he may want to do it on his own. So the discipline that the dog had to have was was really uh, quite quite different, and uh, there are not a lot of dogs that can take that kind of pressure as far as a training pressure. Uh, they'll they'll continue they'll be they'll continue to break on you right. after you kill that first bird, and you could always kind of tell in competitions <clears throat> uh, how how much confidence somebody had in their dog because if they weren't confident in their dog, then they never got their retrieve on course. They'd mm. make you set one up and kill it. You know, if they, or if they weren't sure that the dog was going to back, they'd make sure that the dog was always in situation so that he, 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 he wasn't close to the other dog. I see. But, but the really good dogs, the really great dogs could do those things. And that was a gunfight. I mean, it yeah. was, it was really fun. That that is that is awesome. So, that's that's the old NBHA format, and that's that's the thirty thousand foot view of your of your experience in it, and and how you progress through it. Now let's take a step back and stand in the present and look back at your career. Um, I I could have spent this entire podcast just reading off your accomplishments and your achievements, not only in the NBHA but the field trial game as a whole, but just briefly talk to me about some of your fondest memories competing, some of your biggest accomplishments, those things that really stick out in your mind during your competitive career. Well, the, you know, your first championship's always the best. And, uh, I actually, my first championship was actually the ABHA open national championship, a yes. two go deal. And, uh, I went to Ada, Oklahoma with the Crabtree ranch with one dog, one horse by myself and, uh, loaned my horse to a guy so he could scout my dog. Got so excited in the first go around that when I winged my gun across this little Creek 
trying to grab the dog to get him to go with me. I plugged up my barrel the next time I shot the gun. I blew the end off the barrel. Oh, no. <laughs> so when it came to, I did get into the finals. And so when I, I went back to the, to the uh, horse trailer, I just took a hacksaw and cut two inches off the barrel. And, you know, their rules at the same were the same as ours. And so, you know, uh, had a five fine performance. And, you know, the difference between winning it all and getting nothing sometimes is what happens. And the very last find in that, uh, on, the, on the fifth find, I'm walking down through this big old valley and there's this big brush pile that's about the size of a house in there. And I see my dog pointed about, oh, probably 20 yards from this brush pile. And in his characteristic style, he had his head up, his tail was straight, and he looked really good. And as I get closer to that, I see the bird, and the bird is sitting on top of this brush pile. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'll never get this bird to fly. <laughs> and so <laughs> I say to the judge, I said, do you have the bird? And he goes, no. And I said, it's right there. And he goes, okay. So I, as I walk in front of, the, in front of the dog, the bird jumps up in the air about two feet, dives down the brush pile. I shoot my gun and grab the dog and we go ahead and we finish and <laughs> we win the championship. You know? <laughs> Problem averted. Probably. Yeah. You know, you know, you just, you never know. And I think, I think the other thing that kind of stands out in my mind is, is the very last championship that I won with him. And that is, um, he, uh, had a little bump on his hip and I took him to the vet and the vet took a little look at it and he said, well, let me take a little aspiration of that. So he looked at that and he looked at the microscope and he says, I hate to tell you this, but your dog's got adenocystic carcinoma and he's going to die. Mm. And this was in November. Well, the amateur invitational wasn't until February. So I kind of just brought the dog home, didn't mess with him too much. And he didn't look bad. He didn't act bad, but you know, you could tell that he wasn't quite the same as what he was. And so, uh, it happened to be up at, uh, up in Northern Missouri. And so I decided I'd just take him to the trial and that'd be our last go. Well, I turned him loose and he went out of there. Like he always did like a scalded cat and you just find him pointed. I mean, he was not a dog that you were going to see the whole time. Yeah. And, um, uh, the you'd walk for about five or six minutes and then you'd see him pointed. And so at the end, um, uh, he's been gone for about seven minutes and I'm getting a little nervous and we walk out there and there's this cornfield with all these, uh, with all these, uh, uh, terraces in it. And on the other side of one of these terraces is a big clump of trees and knowing the dog and how, how he was, I said to the judge, I said, now, when I get up here, I'm going to flush for this dog, but the bird's not in that terrace. And he looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> and I said, well, I'll, I'll flush on the terrace just to show you. I said, but the birds are under this tree over here because that's how far he can smell. And he, he looked at me and uh, uh, he goes, there's not a dog alive can smell that far. <laughs> and I, so I flushed and I flushed. And one of the nice things about Honky Tonk Attitude was he never let down. Right. He just he he just stand there like that forever, and so after flushing pretty significantly there for a while, I walked over, flushed there. It happened to be a wild covey of birds. I shot my gun, and <laughs> that was the last time I ever got to run my dog. You know, unbelievable! What a way to culminate that that relationship that you and Bull yeah. had. And I want to I want to do something with you here that I heard done on a uh, 
I have a thoroughbred background. I listen to a lot of podcasts thoroughbred related, and I, I heard this done once with Bob Baffert with some of the horses that he'd had um, over the years and what they'd meant to him. And, and it's kind of a prompt that just in a few words or a couple words there, as I mentioned the, the names of these dogs to you, just tell me what comes up into mind, what you remember, just a few words about each. But I want to preface one before I let turn you loose on him again is, is honky-tonk attitude. Honky-tonk attitude clearly had a large stake in your life and your field trial career, but I can remember when I first started getting the itch to find my way into the field trial world and just learn about it. You know, I was, I was reading the field and stuff. It, it was inevitable that any sort of research that I did online, any sort of, you know, documentation that I read, there was going to be a reference to honky tonk attitude or, or bull as he was known by his call name. And it, he, he was almost just a picture that was synonymous with the world field trial in my mind. And he, he kind of wove himself into competitive fabric. And not only that, when I go back and I look at pedigrees, because I'm a pedigree guru, I just love pedigrees. My wife says I can't remember my phone number for all the pedigrees that are stuck in my head. But when I, when I go back and look at all these pedigrees, he has been a breed shaper. There are so many female families that are still out there that are potent, that are still being bred today in sire lines that have bull as pretty much their foundation. And one of the things that I always found cool about him was I was friends with uh, Donnie and Dewey Mullins that lived in Berea there. And uh, bull or honky-tonk attitude had that fiddler sire line over top of that builder's risk builder's edition female family and Mm -hmm. dewey mullins actually bred builder's edition so i was really familiar with that family and when i discovered that about honky-tonk attitude i thought man he is just the complete package for me what dr went it's probably impossible but just just riff on honky-tonk attitude um if i had to come to one one you just one word it'd be competitor okay and that is that dog loved to compete. When you line him up to, next to another dog, he wasn't going to pick his head up till he was in front of that dog. He had a tremendous nose. His style is, is was was very uh, exceptional. Um, he was he wanted to stay broke. Okay. Now, when I first saw him, um, and all the credit for him, you know, goes to Scott Miller. I mean, he trained the dog. Uh, he worked the dog. He he won with the dog. Um, but uh, Bull was just one of those dogs that, uh, you know, when he was a derby, uh, he got one second. And um, in his in his career, uh, he if he did, he was kind of an all or none dog. He either won it all or he didn't get anything. <laughs> And so, you know, he was a, uh, he was a dog that, uh, when you turned him loose, uh, it was like hanging on the back end of a bus. I mean, he, he stayed to the front. He did what he was supposed to do. He had all the natural tendencies, but, uh, he was a lot of animal. And the unfortunate thing about, uh, uh, about him was he never got to show that at different levels uh, uh, he was a tremendous sire, you know, right. he was, a he was kind of a freakish dog in some ways. And that is, 
there's dogs that are good competitors. There are dogs that are good sires. Some of those dogs are not good breeders. He was he was all of those things, and and it was a he was a fun dog to be around. I mean, you could you could pull up to a motel and let him loose, and if there was a door open, he'd just go in the room. Sit down. <laughs> You know, uh, you could take him in there, you know, he'd, he'd be laying in the middle of the bed. I mean, he's, he was happy. You know? <laughs> and I would, I would gather to say that, that he, he earned that place in the bed in the hotel room, just dog of a lifetime. And, and I know he holds a special place in his heart, but as I look at these other lists of these dogs here that I'm getting ready to, to uh, list off to you here, and you're going to, and you're going to riff on them a little bit. Man, he he's responsible for a lot of them. And the next one on my list is Honky Tonk Gigolo. Honky Tonk Gigolo, whole Woody. Um, Woody was probably one of the most consistent dogs that I ever owned. And uh, in one sense, Woody never got a fair shake. Uh, he and and Shadow's Attitude, another dog on this list, were both derbies at the same time. And um, I ran Gigolo at amateur nationals in the derby and i ran shadow's attitude even though he was a derby in the uh in the championship and he won that you know shadow's attitude won the championship and was the youngest dog ever to win the amateur national championship and and uh poor old gigolo uh he won the first he won the first championship that he was in um, a guy down in texas wanted to buy him from me i sold him to the guy with the provision that I could get him back. And, uh, he had a very successful couple of years. I got the dog back. Uh, he was a, a very consistent performer. I think he won seven championships and, wow. and five or six runner ups. Uh, he never got the opportunity to be a, as prominent a stud dog as he should have been. Mm. Um, but, uh, uh, he was just very, very consistent and uh, great nose. Uh, never, you know, never got hurt. Just, a, just a tough dog. And uh, uh, I, when I decided to go from walking to horseback, I, I had had those two dogs. And after running them for a little while in the horseback shooting dog competitions and getting my butt kicked for a year I kind of got discouraged and I sold both of those dogs. Well, when I sold, when I sold Woody, I sold him back to John Everett down in South Carolina. And even though having been away from the NBHA for almost two years, he was the uh, national dog of the year the next year. National <laughs> Open dog of the year. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, he was, he was, a uh, he was a very good dog and, uh, uh, you know, he just didn't, he just, he was always in the wrong, he was always in the wrong place. I mean, Shadow's attitude was, um, a more, uh, uh, exotic looking dog. He had that high, extremely high head crank. Mm. Um, he was jo uh, a Joe shadow trait. He's shadow's attitude yeah. was by Joe shadow. Yeah. And that was a pretty, yeah. Yeah. that was a pretty but, dominant trait in that, in that. Family. Well, and, Those... and, and his, and his mother was a, was a daughter of honky tonk attitude. So, you know, the two of them together between the Joe shadow and, sure. and, and bull, I mean, uh, they were going to crank their head right. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it, 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 when you have two that are very successful, you kind of have one that's a favorite. Well, looking back on it, 
my favorite should have been should have been Woody because, uh, uh, well, uh, there's a guy down in Texas by the name of George Gage, and George was looking for a dog, and so I was uh, uh, down at Ardmore, and we were running the Amateur Invitational down there, and uh, Woody was supposed to run the next morning. And George comes up to me and says, I want to buy that little black-headed dog. And I said, no, George, I've sold him too many times. I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> He's just going to stay with me. And he says, well, would you sell half of him? And I said, yeah, George, I'd sell half of him, but you don't want to do that. And he goes, well, well, yeah, I do. And I said, okay, here's the deal. You can have half the dog for $10,000. And he kind of looked at me and he says, okay, well, mm-hmm. I didn't think too much of it. And the next morning he was supposed to run the first race. And so I get there early, get the dogs out and doing my stuff and everything. Here walks up George and he hands me $10,000 in when we're $100 bills. Wow. And so we go out, we run that brace, we win the championship. And <laughs> I said, well, George, go up and pick up that stuff. That's yours. <laughs> <laughs> and he was happy. You know? He was so, money you know, well I mean, spent. It's just, yeah. You know, it's just, it's that. Uh, Woody was a very nice dog. Yeah, and he sounds like Mr. Reliable in in this string. But there's another dog here we've touched on, Shadow's Attitude. But Shadow's Attitude being, you know, I don't want to call him an outcross because I don't know how how early on in your breeding career, but uh, Shadow's Attitude was was responsible for getting you Attitude's high finance. That was out of a pretty prominent LU family. Yeah, well, when uh, – Shadow's Attitude came from Alabama, and uh, a guy by the name of Ed Cooley helped me find the dog down there. And so um, he had bred to the dog when the dog was very, very young, because I, I, I got uh, I got cash for Shadow's Attitude when he was about uh, 10 months old. And so when I went back to run at Amateur Nationals there at, at Parches Cove, uh, he had two derbies. Or, or, or two young dogs that were going to be derbies the next year um, out of cash. And at that point in time, I was looking for the next, what I thought was going to be the next great stud dog. And so I said, well, I want to buy those two dogs. He says, well, I won't sell you both of them. I'll sell you one. And um, so I took both of them back with me. Um, Scott trained them both. One of them, uh, Cash Advance and, and uh, Attitudes High Finance were brothers. One of them was the Open Derby of the Year. The other was the Amateur Derby of the Year. <laughs> and uh, uh, Attitudes, High, uh, Attitudes High Finance was a solid, he was a beautiful dog, big, big leggy dog, solid black head, clean body. And uh, he just had, he had so much nose, it was really hard to flush for that dog. I mean, you, you might have to walk 30 steps in front of him to get the bird up. Wow. I mean, he was just a freak. But uh, I kept him for a while. He won, he won several championships. And then uh, Scott Turner and uh, Dennis Buford uh, down in South Carolina bought him from me. Hmm. And, and, the, and the first time they ran him, uh, he won the amateur national championship down there. So Wow, you, you, you were a pretty lucky place to shop. Uh, well, we had some pretty good dogs. <laughs> what about what about Edition's big delivery? I threw him here on this list because I was hoping he come from the similar female family, uh, that Builder's Edition top top yeah, breed. He does. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and and he uh, he was probably 
one of the better bird dogs that you ever had. I mean, I mean, he could he he could find a bird in a Walmart parking lot. Uh, <laughs> but his his thing was uh, he was he was a nice dog. He won a lot. I think he was a six time runner up champion. And um, at that point in time, I was such a rotten, spoiled child. I didn't think that was good enough. <laughs> and so I sold him to a guy in Texas because he wasn't winning. You know, he was winning, but he wasn't. Wasn't winning, winning enough for you. It wasn't winning enough for me. You know, what so, a problem. You know, he, what a problem to have. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, what what about what about honky tonk fantasy and honky tonk high rise? Both both progeny of honky tonk attitude. What what about those two dogs? Fantasy. I had bought a, a uh, the the top derby in in the in the country from from a guy by the name of Jeff Johnson, uh, uh, Flash Dancers Pansy, about the same time that I got that I got uh, Bull, and so uh, she was a really pretty dog and we decided we were going to breed her to honky tonk attitude well she wasn't very cooperative and she only had two puppies and uh, fantasy was one of those two puppies and uh, she was a dog that uh, uh, was a great hour dog but she was not a two-hour dog Hmm. and uh, you know she stayed to the front she'd find game she always looked looked good, good pointed, uh, but you know she was a two-time national champion with uh, six times runner-up. Well, what people don't understand was four times when she was runner-up, she was runner-up to her daddy. So, <laughs> you know, it's it, it you know it timing's everything. Sure. Um, she was a dog that when um, she was uh, about six years old, I took her to the vet. She was kind of losing some weight and uh, she succumbed to the old additions go boy and that line of dogs that all got cancer. Mm. And so uh, we bred her to uh, shadow's attitude because the same day that we, we got that diagnosis, she came in to eat, she raised a litter of puppies and that was, that was the last thing she ever did. She raised them all, got them eight weeks old and then she, she didn't make it. So, mm. Mm. Great dog, though. Great dog, great dog, and we've we've kind of walked down this this proverbial shed row of of your kennel of dogs gone by, dogs that have carried you through a through a very successful uh, career. But looking back at these dogs, Doctor Went, that you've bred, that you've that you've trained, and and that you've you've had your hands on, and that you've competed with. To you, what's the most important aspect or trait of a successful field trial dog? Well, uh, it's 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 kind of the old judge's routine. Which one would you like to take home? Mm. We always want the dog that has that burning desire to find game. You know, some dogs are just smart. I mean, you turn puppies loose and the winds blow in a certain direction. Some of them get on one side of the fence and some of them go to the other side of the fence. Hmm. And the ones that are on the right side, they didn't get there because they just instinctively do those things. I mean, they, they know things. And uh, so, you know, uh, if you're an aggressive person, you want an aggressive dog. Uh, and so, you know, you got to have a dog with a good nose. Uh, 
that whole line of dogs, every single one of them had, had, had the super noses. And, uh, uh, when you look, you were talking earlier about breeding and that is, if you look at the daughters of honky tonk attitude, uh, that's really where his success as a, as a breeding dog comes from, or, or is not comes from, but is, is, is perpetuated mm. because his daughters are good producers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's, it's not just a thing that plays out in the bird dog world. It, it plays out in the horse world too. There's, there are blue hen mares and, and wonderful um, broodmare sires that just continually shape the breed because of not not necessarily the stud or the sons that they produce, but the 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 great brood females that come out of these crosses, and it, it sounds like that you kind of had the market cornered. You had you had these these well-to-do studs, these high-profile studs to pick from, and these great female families, these great females right underneath the same roof at the same kennel. But one thing that I'm hearing amongst all these, and I think Bull kind of more or less culminated this the best, was, was that insatiable um, appetite for competition. He, it just sounds like every time his feet hit the ground and the leash was let off the collar, he was going to outcompete the other dog next to him, and he knew what he was there to do. Yeah. Well, he was, he was kind of like what we see in some of our pro basketball players right now, and that is he wasn't a very good practice dog, okay? He knew when it was practice, and he knew when it was game time. And that aspect of him stood him really well. I mean, uh, he, he just, you know. He could turn it off, and then he could turn it on. Yeah, he, really he, smart he, animals do that. Yeah, well, and, and you you ask about one other dog, the the high rise dog, the high rise dog, uh, much like Shadow's attitude was he was a freak when he was a puppy. I mean, when you would when you would put him on a wing, when he was ten or twelve weeks old, he'd crank his head up so high you'd think he was going to fall over backwards. <laughs> and uh, he was a dog that was very hard to finish. Um, you know, of the four dogs that I won the National Amateur Championship with, uh, he was the dog that was probably the most difficult to get around because you'd have him and he'd be doing good. And then about five minutes to go, he would adios on you. And so, mm. you know, when he won the, the National Amateur, he didn't win it because he got in the first go round. He was actually the standby dog. And, um, I was braced with a guy from South Carolina by the name of Joe Norris and Joe, Joe was about the fastest walking guy on the planet. And so at that point in time, I cared a lot more about being able to walk than I do right now. And, you know, I had a picture of Joe from behind on the wall in front of my treadmill. So when I get up in the morning, I'd be walking with Joe every day. We actually were braced together in that standby brace. And at, at 45 minutes, Joe said, I've had it, we're done. And so then I was by myself with, with, uh, uh, with high rise and he, he was, he was gone at the time. And when the judge said, uh, I need to see the dog. I, I was just screaming at this dog, trying to get him to come back. <laughs> and I, and I, I had not sent my scout to look for him as of yet. And at that point in time, 
we're back at the Crabtree Ranch down in Ada, Oklahoma, the same place that we've been many times. And he came to this little opening, stood there for a minute, looked at it. And I said to the judge, you got him. It was Dempsey Williams from Tennessee. And he goes, yep. I sent this guy in there. We got him and we won. But, <laughs> uh, you know, he could have just as easily kept right on going. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like he, he came out and knew he needed to turn around and smile at you just because just he that knew. that once. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was about the only time he ever came back and smiled at <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, most of the time it was adios. That's really neat to, that you're able to look back and, and draw those names and those moments, and that's what makes field trial specials. But but there's there's a question here that I have because a lot changed between your MBHA career up until now, and, and that's – pretty much a lane shift and what what i'd like to know is how how did you exactly merge your career from walking trials to horseback trials sure well if, if you if you know anything about me you know that scott miller and i were intertwined in our uh, career together almost from the beginning and uh, he's responsible for all the success that i enjoyed with dogs like I said, I never won anything. The dogs won things, but he got the dogs ready. And when he decided that it was time to move on and go to, to uh, horseback shooting dog competitions, um, I took a couple of the dogs with me, but I wasn't winning like I was e- expecting to. And so I decided that what I needed to do was I needed to go and I needed to watch different kinds of dogs. And you know, at that point in time, because I had a horse and I was available, I got to judge. And uh, I went to uh, uh, Inola to judge for Dr. Hawthorne. And um, so, you know, when I get out there and I've got my getting ready to take off first day, uh, he's running the dog wagon and he goes to me and he says, now, son, I know you've seen a lot of dogs, but most important thing in an all-age stake is race. And if you don't have the race, it doesn't make any difference how many birds you find. First thing you've got to have is the race. And that's really something that I've carried with me all of that time. And so later as that trial was over, he goes, well, before you turn these in, I'd kind of like to see what your placements are. And I said, okay, I'll show you mine if you'll show me yours. (laughs) And he goes, okay. And so we laid our two little sheets out and they were exactly the same. And he goes, okay, well, come to find out as I'm talking to him, he was an oral surgeon. I'm a periodontist. We'd went to the same school. He was close friends with, uh, another oral surgeon that I knew. And, uh, uh, my wife's grandmother had worked for him at one point in time. Wow. And so, you know, the field trial world's a lot smaller than what you think. It you know? it, it absolutely is. And you never know the connections you're going to make or, or connections that you're going to find. Um, you know, I've had this question before, Dr. Went, and, and you may agree with me and you may not. Um, I know the keyboard warriors may come after me, but I, I think I told you this in our, in our precursing um, phone call, but I had a gentleman ask me once that was coming to judge a walk-in trial, and he had judged many horseback shooting dog trials and many all-age trials, and he asked me, he just said, I want to make sure I do a good job. I need to know what I'm looking for. I need to know because I don't, you know, I know what I I see when I'm looking at these other trials, but I've never really done a walk-in trial like this, and it was was a high-profile one, and I just said, listen, you've looked at enough horseback shooting dogs that you should be able to see 
the same dog here today. That's the dog you were looking for then, and that horseback shooting dog is similar to the dog that you're going to see here today. There, there's maybe a few caveats that are different here and there, but I think what happens is, is people on the outside looking in like to look at that walking shooting dog as a step down or a class down from that horseback shooting dog. And, and people love to draw delineating lines between things because, you know, that's just the habit of man. But what, what is the difference between an all-age dog and a shooting dog? Basically pace. Um, and that is, you know, um, when you look at a walking dog, you're looking at a pace that's about 3.5 miles an hour. You look at horseback shooting dog, that dog is uh, running about six miles an hour. When you look at an all-age dog, you know, he's eight to nine miles an hour. And uh, the range is bigger. Uh, uh, As far as the bird work, the nose, uh, those types of things, you're still looking for the best dog. Right. Uh, and so it becomes a question of how you look at ground application and what the difference in the standard is. And, uh, you know, when the sport started, there weren't any shooting dogs. There were just all age dogs. Right. And uh, there's, you know, as the sport has evolved, those two have become closer and closer together. And, you know, one of the things that's, uh, unfortunate for the sport right now is that you you've seen a demise of the prairie trials yes and and so it's really extremely difficult to you know evaluate the difference between those two dogs sometimes based upon the terrain that you're in whereas if you're up on the prairies it's, it's very easy to see the difference in the range of the dog and 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 the drive of the dog so you know, when we look at those things, um, we're seeing um, we're seeing the dog kind of evolve into what its its terrain is like. Uh, I mean, you're you're seeing you're seeing a, probably a, a, a kinder, gentler dog than what you did see many years ago. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, we're losing grounds. At a, sure. at a at a sad rate, and not only are we losing grounds, grounds are the grounds that we are that we have are seemingly shrinking too. I mean, to mm-hmm. to show a true all age dog, it takes it takes a lot of acreage, and not only just yeah. acreage, a lot of open acreage, and and that that's real estate that's just getting harder and harder, not only to find, but to keep, and and it's you go to a lot of venues where there's all age stakes, but it doesn't mean that that's a good place for an all-age dog or a good place to show an all-age dog. And I, I can yeah. see the difficulties uh, when we talk about topography and terrain and, and ground availability. Well, you know, I mean, if you if you look at, say, like Hoffman on the East Coast, that's a really good set of all-age grounds. You know, the 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 loss of the Florida trial is 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 damaging for. The, all age because that was a good set of grounds you know you you uh you go to hell creek that's a great place to evaluate a dog because the lines are so long i mean you start down one of those if you're a real all-age dog you're going to go clear to the end of it okay if, if you don't point a bird you're going to keep going and so you know it it becomes uh 
as you said, it becomes more and more difficult to look at things um, and to evaluate things because sometimes you just don't have uh, you, you just don't have the terrain that's uh, and and the uh, uh, area that's conducive to running that that big hard running dog. Right. Right. Well, we we've dabbled here in the all age dog and the different disciplines and stuff, but one of the reasons why you were such a uh, such a good prospect for our field trial in this interview is not only are or were an MBHA patron and understand that side of the coin very well, you've set in the judicial saddle, you know, a lot. And not only just a lot, you're setting in some of the most prime judicial saddles that the game has today. And I'd like for you just to summarize your judging career up to this point, where it's taking you, where it's taken you in this part of your career and what it's meant to you. Well, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a great honor to judge the national championship. Uh, it's a great honor to judge the, the quail invitational at Paducah. You know, um, when you go to those things, you get to see the best dogs in the country. Okay. And, uh, you have experiences with those dogs in, 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 in a way that, you get to evaluate them and it's, it's really quite an honor to get to do that. Uh, I think that it becomes, um, there's a lot of responsibility to the sport there. And that is, although it's enjoyable, uh, you want to make sure that you get it right. Mm. Okay. That you pick the right dog. And, um, so when you look at those things, um, no judge makes makes a perfect decision every single time. Okay, uh, you see things that uh, you know. For example, on those two events, you have three judges. Okay, and that's something that you know for most big national events, I think is a really good thing because it doesn't allow one person to overpower the other person. You got to have consensus between the three. Right. And, and, and I think that's very good for our sport. Um, I think that, um, uh, it's, um, it's, it's, it's important to be able to, uh, evaluate the dog in such a way that it's complementary to the dog too. And that is, you know, um, you're going to have people that are going to be unhappy with you. In fact, there's only going to be one guy when you get done, that's going to be happy with your decision. <laughs> right. Everybody else is, they're going to think you're stupid. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Uh, but it, it becomes important to uh, be able to uh, uh, deal with that aspect of things. And, and as a judge, you're, you're, you're evaluating the dog, but you're also an ambassador to the sport. Sure. Yeah. And absolutely. that is if you're, you're, you try and be respectful of the person and his dog, even if that dog may not be competitive on that particular day. Right. He's paid his entry fee. He deserves your attention. Sure. And, and so, the dog has done a lot to get to that point. It, it, oh, mer- it merits the attention. Yeah. And, and so, you know, um, if you're trying to be uh, an ambassador for the sport, if you're trying to do the right thing, 
you take your job pretty darn seriously and um it uh it becomes uh when when you when you reach your decision and you're in in agreement with the other judges and everybody's uh there uh, it becomes very important to make sure that you do the right thing not only for that specific trial but for the sport in general you know sure um it's it's uh it's 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 a lot of fun uh but it's it's also pretty serious about you know you got to pay attention and I, I think one of the things that gets lost on it is the fact that it's a marathon i mean this is not you're going to a weekend trial and sitting in the saddle a few hours you're you're spending a couple weeks and you're not only looking at these dogs for 30 minutes to an hour they're they're on the ground for a serious serious amount of time. They're they're this is the longest endurance stake I believe sure. that, that we have. And yeah. this this kind of plays into the next question that I have is is the the Amesian standard. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's an aura about this, and there's and there's a lot of talk about the Amesian standard. But when you sit in the saddle at Ames and you and you look back at history or you think about history, at least I would. I see names like John Rex Gates and Safari. I think of, you know, Riggins, White Knight, and Hoyle Eaton. I think of, you know, Allure and Billy Morton. I, you know, I think of all of these these names that are etched in our field trial history, and then to be able to sit in that saddle to judge the next name that goes on that list of these of these dogs that have not only helped shape our sport, but our breed. What tell the outsider looking in? What what kind of dog does it really take to win at Ames? Well, um, the, the, the first time that I got to judge there, um, was the year that, uh, tried and true won, And, um, uh, the dog was, uh, Luke Eisenhart did a masterful job of handling the dog. If you've been to that venue, uh, it's not a huge place. And so as you'd be going into a field, the dog would be going out the other end mm. and, uh, there was not, I mean, it wasn't like Tommy Davis is the scout. I mean, Tommy hardly did anything with the dog. I mean, wow. the dog handled, he stayed to the front. And had a lot of fines in that, yeah, in that he, performance. He had, he had eight. And and the, the one that stands out the most in my mind was the fourth one. And uh, we've just crossed the dam by the little lake there in that morning course. And uh, Tommy calls point for the dog. And we go up there. Uh, the dog is, he's, he's pointing right next to a, a pole there and Luke gets off and he looks around a little bit and he goes in front of the dog. And as he goes in front of the dog, I'm watching this dog and this dog just kind of cuts his head just a tiny little bit to the right, but he's, he's, he's focused on Luke and Luke flushes and flushes and flushes and he comes back and he relocates the dog and sends him to the front of where he was and he, and he hunts and hunts and hunts and he doesn't seem like he's got anything. And he moves to the right just a little bit and uh, he puts the dog over there and the dog's very obedient. He's doing exactly what he wants. And you can see that dog's getting frustrated and Luke's getting frustrated and he starts slapping his leg like he's going to take him, take him on. And about that time, the dog just kind of looks at him and he turns and he takes about 10 steps to his right and he nails the birds. Huh. And he knew where they were at the whole time. The dog knew where they were at the whole time. <laughs> but he was doing what he was asked to do. Yes. You know, you wow. know and uh, 
it, it, it's just, you know, that's the exceptional piece of bird work that you look at. Or, right. you know, when um, when when uh, Miller's speed dial won, uh, the dog had a pretty rough first hour. But after that, the dog adjusted. He went into the woods. He started finding birds. And with three minutes to go, the dog, is, we find him pointed to the front. You can't look any better on a on a on a on a bird than what this dog does and i've had some pretty good looking dogs sure and he was as good as anything i'd ever seen and uh gary gets off he flushes this covey of birds he takes the dog to his horse and we're starting down this big old field and when he hits the whistle this dog throws mud okay at the end of three hours he's got okay. it in four-wheel drive at the end yeah. of three and hours. so when you look at at things like that uh those those exceptional moments that you get to see through there uh, uh that is what uh, makes judging those things special yeah. and that's why those particular dogs win is because they do exceptional things yeah they 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 cement a memory in your mind and that's and that's part of being a judge is what are the things that you saw that stuck out in your mind to help you know paint this picture on this blank canvas of this run that this dog has and if that dog has enough of those beautiful components in there that's the dog you remember when it comes time to revisit your notes and make a decision and and your decision is met with two other deliberators at Ames and we've already talked about two that you've named national champion Dunn's tried and true Miller's speed dial but you also named uh, Coldwater Thunder a pointer female there back in 2021 uh, Lester Shockwave and mm -hmm. then last year, Miller's Blindsider, uh, handled by by Jamie Daniels, and you know that that's a pretty hefty roster of dogs. Just in just in the time you've been doing it, those those dogs have racked up just some serious accolades and 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 all those achievements and stuff. But it makes me wonder your perspective on this next question: How, how has the field trial dog changed over your career from the time that you put your hands on the dog as as a young person or as a new trialer till now, how have you seen the dog change? Well, I think that uh, the physique of the dog has changed a little bit. I think you see a little, a little, a little shorter coupled dog, a little fancier dog, uh, uh, a dog that's a little easier to handle. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I always laugh because I had a walking dog that to get right to take to a trial, you needed to work him off the horse for a couple of hours, several <laughs> days in advance. Grind so the edge off pace, of him. Pace him down to where you could actually stay with him. Sure. You know, uh, in talking with, with people who have trained all age dogs for a number of years, um, there were a lot of the, you know, uh, old front uh, the old rebel dogs that were a, a lot like that only to the extreme i mean you know they they were a lot more animal than what you see right now now there's some very good dogs out there right now and i'm certainly not trying to diss any of them sure but i think that we're different i mean the dogs not as the dogs today are a little uh they're a little bit they're not as coarse as some of those dogs were um and uh and I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons why field trials are so important is because uh, the drag of the race, if we're to continue to have great dogs, we've got to evaluate those dogs under extreme conditions. 
mm. and three hours at the at, at the national uh the invitational format whether it's an hour an hour and then two hours those types of things give you a much better indication than what you see when you just run the dog for an hour right and uh uh those things translate hopefully they translate in when you breed the dog into getting a a uh, higher quality of, of of animal down the road and it's why our trials with callbacks and qualifying and qualifiers um they're so hard to win because you've just got to put it all together not just once but a time or two or three maybe and and on top of that you have fatigue that starts to set in and one thing that I'll just chime in on is I think we're I think we're better now at conditioning dogs we we understand dog nutrition better uh we understand um you know genetics a little bit better and how traits carry through certain nicks in our breeding and I think we're better I think we're just better at conditioning dogs and getting them ready for those things and it's why I think their physique has changed but you know, those are some real specific things, not only regards to your MBHA career, but your your um, role now at Ames at the National, um, which is a great honor, I'm sure. But l- let's talk broad picture here for the last couple questions as we close. Um, you mentioned friendships earlier and the memories that you made, and that was a that was a great comment. But talk to me, talk to our listeners about the friendships you've made in field trials and, and why they are so important, not only to you as a, as a person, but why are they important to network at field trials in the first place? Well, there are a lot of different ways to gain information. Okay. And, uh, if you surround yourself with knowledgeable people, you learn something every time you go to the field trial. Sometimes those things are positive, sometimes those things are negative, but you learn something. And your relationships that you form with those people, uh, they become important from a training standpoint, from a networking standpoint, as far as breeding dogs, acquiring dogs, uh, evaluating dogs. And uh, you, you get to know some people that, have very varied careers from what yours are and they have different points of view but at the same point in time when you can come to consensus on what was the superior performance that day then uh, those things you'll you'll start to look at things in a slightly different way and the more information that you have the the better your choices will be and the relationships that you have with people, I mean, you know, and I say this, I mean, dogs come and go, okay? No dog's going to live forever, but your friendship with that person might last 30 years. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you kind of an example of that. And that is when I bought um, the dog, the little frozen semen dog from guardrail, I never met Gene Casale. And I would have probably never gone to a field trial if he hadn't have made me promise to take the dog to a field trial or he wouldn't sell me the dog. Hmm. Well, I'm down in South Carolina. Oh, it's probably 15 years later. And I'm judging a championship down there. And this little old man walks up to me and he goes, are you Stan Wynn? I said, yes, sir, I am. And he goes, well, I'm Gene Casale. And I said, you rotten sucker, you ruined my life. 
I said, I've spent a million dollars. I've driven 600,000 miles chasing these dogs around, and it's all because of you. And he goes, and you had a great time. And so, you know, it's it's kind of interesting sometimes how things come full circle and how people influence you. And sometimes it's people that you don't even really ever meet. Sure. But, you know. So you, I don't you, know if I answered your question. That's perfect. No, that's perfect. You brought that full circle too, because we started with that story of Gene and and you were able to circle it back around in, in a beautiful fashion there. But, you know, talking about those things and those intangibles about our sport. Now let's talk about the sport itself. Um, Dr. Went, you're, you're, you're in a position where you've, you've looked at the game and how it's changed its characters, um, its place in history. How do we grow the sport? Well, I think that there are some positive things happening right now. And that is, uh, several years ago, the walking, the walking aspect of the, of the game was, was really kind of down. And I see a resurgence in that right now. And, and that's good because that's kind of the feeder aspect of the sport. Uh, the next logical transition of that is, is, is in the shooting dog aspect. And right now, when you look at, and you look at the open shooting dog competitions, uh, they're having uh, very large entries, and and that's good. Um, I have some concerns about the all-age sport right now, simply because our numbers are down. I mean, uh, you know, we're not, you know, we're not seeing the 60, 70, 100 dog entries that we used to see. Hmm. You know, now we look at things, and if it's a, it's a, a 50 dog trial, then that's, that's a pretty, that's a pretty big all age trial right now. And, you know, when you start looking at the number of people that are training, those numbers are shrinking too. Hmm. And, and so I think that, uh, I think that, uh, we have to, uh, we have to look at, what the sport is, you know, where the sport's going. And uh, we have to do everything that we can to try and encourage people to be involved in it at all levels, whether it be running their dog, assisting with the trial, judging a trial, uh, breeding literate dogs that might be competitive. Sure. You know, I mean, uh, there's, there's no one answer. I mean, I would love to say that, you know, I'm all for youth field trials. Right. I, I think it's, it's, it's absolutely great. But the biggest impediment that we have right now is that people don't hunt anymore. Mm. And as the hunting numbers of people have gone down, the number of bird dogs has gone down Yeah. and, and it's an, it's a natural attrition type thing. And so uh, I think that it's going to be, become more and more important for the people that are in the sport to become uh, a mentor or an ambassador to the other people there. And that is, sure. if you see somebody that's new at a trial, go over and talk to them. Yeah. Ask them what they like. I mean, and, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a pointer or a setter or, you know, there are some, there are some wonder, I mean, in, in getting to judge a lot of different trials, whether it be a Brittany or a German Shorter or whatever, you see some fabulous animals. You do. And and they're not all in one breed. And and so, you know, um, it 
it becomes being respectful of the person who owns the dog and be respectful of the dog and thinking about things as far as how you can make things better. Right. Right. And, you know, going back to your point about youth, the MBHA has a vested interest in, in the youth because of just the reasons you said they, they're the ones that will either carry the flag or lay it down generations down from here. But, you know, when you, when you talk about, um, getting kids interested in stuff. I heard a trainer, a famous uh, thoroughbred trainer in England today by the name of Sir Mark Prescott, and he said that the modern the modern kid or the modern um, adolescent is losing touch and losing understanding with the working animal. And we, also, we get to enjoy these dogs for their talents and skill sets, but these horses and these dogs, to some degree, were bred as working animals. And, and there was a symbiotic relationship between man and beast that provided for each other. And as we disconnect and as, as there's so many things grabbing for kids' attention and not only kids, but adults' attention, we lose that really sensitive and very um, coarse fabric that knitted man and dog together in the first place. And we, the MBHA does such a good job at bringing kids in and making sure they get to do something. They get to blow a whistle, they get to fire a blank gun, they get to yell at Papa's dog, they get to pet a horse or maybe even sit on a horse. And, and that's, that might be just enough of the drug or the field trial drug to get that kid thinking about that, that game again once they get out of high school or college or to make them want to get that first hunting dog. And I'm prime example of that, Dr. Wynn. I, I grew up a bird hunter, a grouse hunter. That segued into field trials, and that segued into pretty much a career both in horseback and walking trials. And And the MBHA is not just a ramp for other disciplines. We have people that make a living within the MBHA oh. format. And and they, I mean, I, I, I will stand on this hill and die on this hill, but our, some of our prof- professionals and amateurs, they could wipe the socks off of people if they would branch out and go into some other disciplines and stuff if they wanted to. They Their dogs and their abilities are, are second to none. They're second to none. But the MBHA has this in, this unique place in field trials where we can foster interest in other avenues, and that's what you were touching on is how do you know if you want to participate in horseback field trials, A, if you don't have a horse and you're not that kind of person, unless you go to a walking trial and maybe get that first taste. Because if you get that first taste and you like it, it's just like everything else in life. What do you want? Well, you want you want more of it, right? Absolutely. You know, I gave an, I gave an illustration earlier about the first time I turned a dog loose, okay, and what happened and how magical it was when that dog pointed a bird and I shot the bird and everything was, you, you know, you get this, you can get the same feeling at a field trial. Yeah. You can get it, you know, uh, if you're going to, you know, and the, and the nice thing about the NBHA and it's a wonderful organization uh, is uh, you don't have to have a horse. Right. It helps. Yeah. Oh yeah. It helps, but you don't have to have that. Uh, there are people that will help you. There are people, like you said, that make a living doing this and, you know, Maybe they're maybe they help you during the week when you don't have time to do things. Sure. And uh, so your dog is ready to go, and maybe one time you compete in the open, or they compete in the open, and you run in the amateur. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of different permutations there, and uh, what the secret I think is is to having that moment. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that is if you have that moment with the dog, then you're going to want to continue to do it. Yeah. And uh, it, it does have to be about the dog. I mean, uh, you know, I, I always kind of laugh at things when I'm listening to people talk and, you know, I kind of break it down into two groups and that is there's the dog people and then there's the eye people and the eye people will never win enough. Okay. Yeah. The dog people keep coming back because they love their animal. Win or lose. Win or lose. Yeah. 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 And that's what yeah. said, that's what separates field trial people. I think for the most part that we do get people that get their feelings hurt and they, they kind of stay puckered up because they don't win all the time. But for the most part, if you hang around field trials and you stick in it, you're a dog person. You, you, yeah. you just love the dog. So what, what advice, Dr. Went, do we have for new field trialers? They're, they're listening to stuff like this podcast. They're getting content from various other pieces, for other places on the Internet. They've got dogs. They're running out of hunting. They've got to justify keeping these dogs and working these dogs sure. and buying this dog food. What advice do you have to those new trialers? Learn as much as you can from the people around you. Network. Yeah. yeah. There, there are a, a great number of resources that you have that are very close to you. And whether it be um, a walking competition, a horseback competition, an all-edge competition, whatever it is, there are people that are close to you from a geographic standpoint that, that can help you to get better. And the more things you learn, the more uh, successful you will be. And uh, there are, there's a whole lot of different dogs out there and and being able to evaluate that animal and determine whether it's the dog that you're going to take hunting or it's the dog that you're going to compete with uh, it all is based pretty much on helping to you know uh, establishing a knowledge base and then from that critically evaluating what you do right you know um, uh, and you you need to learn something every time you go. And and you need to invest you need to invest in people and it's a two-way street because you need to network with these people but you need to have an intrinsic value to them. You need to you need to know that to let them know that you want to learn and that you can offer help and you can, you know, help clean stalls or help them with the dogs or or help train with them or whatever, but the return you, in that is an investment in yourself too because I'll pour into you you pour into me and we make each other better. And, and the, that's what makes these friendships and field trials so unique. Oh, yeah. You know, I, uh, I had never met a gentleman by the name of, of, of Jim Krause, who at that point in time was judging the national championship. Yes. And he came out to Kansas and uh, judged the trial out at Medicine Lodge. And I ran a dog out there. I thought the dog did pretty good. And, um, he didn't like the dog. And, um, didn't use the dog and so as we're coming back he was going to drive to dixon kentucky well we hit a snowstorm and so about 45 minutes from my house i called him on the cell phone and i said hey man you got to stop at my house you cannot drive all the way home in the storm is all i can make it i said, no don't do that so we put his horses in the barn and he stayed here all night and so after um, uh, a little while i asked him i said what didn't you like about my dog? <laughs> and he goes, I liked your dog. You just ran him in the wrong stake. You had him in a shooting dog stake and that was an all age dog. <laughs> and so, you know, you know, you, you sometimes 
you don't always get the opportunity to ask that question, you know? Yeah. And those types of relationships down the road serve you well, you know? And so the more people that you become involved with and the more you put yourself out there, uh, the, the, the greater the amount of knowledge that you gain. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, Dr. Went, you've been a great guest. You've got great insight, great context with regards to the NBHA now and in its past. Five times you've judged the National All-Age Championship going on six this coming February. Um, just so thankful for you to be on, but I can't let you go without asking this question, and everybody that comes on here will probably have to answer this same question. Where do you see the sport 10, 20, 30 years from now? Well, nobody likes change, okay? And we would like for our sport to be the same. You know, this is the 125th anniversary of the National, and we'd like for that to continue to change continue to stay the same for forever. Um, if things do not improve and dog numbers do not improve, I, I'm, I'm afraid that what you will see in the future is instead of an all age division, a shooting dog division, I think you'll probably just see one. And uh, I'm not sure that that's good for the sport, but, you know, it simply becomes a question of, of, numbers and economics at some point sure. in time. And so I am hopeful that we can maintain the traditions that we have and, and the uh, unique uh, aspects of each different division of the dog world that we have. Uh, but I have some real concerns about that. And uh, I think that's why it's so very important for people that listen to something like this podcast to understand that our, our, uh, our sport is fragile and it it's, it's only going to grow if we grow it. Sure. And so we have to be the people who carry the flag and try and make it better. We can't wait for somebody else to do it. Amen. So an answer to your question, um, I think our, our future is as good as, the people who work hard to make it better. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's, there's always going to be a group of people with a negative outlook on the sport. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's realistic views and then there's negative views. I've kind of always said, as long as, as long as there's dogs and man loves dogs, I can't see a world without field trials and, and a place for a man to complete compete with his bird dog. But Dr. Went, thank you so much for your time, your, your hindsight, your insight, your foresight and everything else in between. Thank you so much for joining us on the breakaway podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was the breakaway podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend, like, and subscribe to all of our social media platforms to stay up to date on everything national bird hunters association and all other field trial-related content. But hopefully, we'll see you next time at The Breakaway.